case you don't know uh, who these other two voices up here uh, were, that was just Shannon Pruch, and before that was Ann Wagoner. So, well done for them again. Good job. So today, we are going to look at another very familiar story. I don't know which parable was more familiar, is more familiar to people, last week on the prodigal son, or this week on the Good Samaritan. And before we look at the text, however, it's very important that we consider the context before we jump in anymore. So first, the, the context you need to hear uh, is what happened, according to the Gospel of Luke, right before Jesus gets into this parable called the Good Samaritan. Here's the lay of the land. Uh, Jesus recognizes that he's one guy, and he can only be in one place at a particular time. He knows that the needs are greater than one person can possibly meet. And so he commissions his closest followers and sends them out into the villages around to go do the things that he was doing. Remarkable. What were the disciples wondering? You mean you want us to go and teach like you teach, to tell what we've heard from you? And are you saying, Jesus that you actually want us to go and like pray for people and heal people? Are, are, you, are you serious, Clark? Right? I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And they believed it and they went out and extraordinary things happened. So they came back and they were talking about how everything that they'd hoped happened that it was like the same power that was working through Jesus was happening through them. They were going out in the power of the very Spirit of God that was animating Jesus. They were teaching with boldness, and the Spirit was using them as a conduit to bring people to, them, to God's self. And not only that, when people expected that perhaps the followers of Jesus might have something to do with healing like Jesus did, they gave it a shot. And lo and behold, the Spirit worked through them to bring healing where they went in various forms. They came back just on cloud nine. Jesus collects them together and talks about them. By the way, this is crazy provocative. I know we hear this and we're like, well, that's neat. Jesus sent them out into the, into the hinterlands and they got to do cool stuff. Neat. But for a Jewish hearer of this text, and particularly for a Jewish leader who would hear of this stuff, it would be absolutely unnerving. Do you know why? Because these fishermen who smelled because they bathed irregularly and whose breath still has beer from the night before on it, they're the last ones that God is ever going to use. And it's any kind of healing or any kind of prophetic word, it is not going to happen up in Lake County. It's going to happen in Napa, by golly, because we're the center of this county. We're the center of the world. And the Jewish leadership at their time, they're thinking, if God's going to do anything, it's not going to be through you losers. It's going to be through leaders like me. And not here, but at the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the healing happens, amateurs. But that's not what happened. So that's why it's so provocative. 
And so Jesus gathers them around, and I don't have any text for you on the screens until I uh, get to something else, but Jesus uh, hears their stories, and then he, he goes into prayer, and he says, I thank you, Father, Master of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the know-it-alls and showed them to these innocent newcomers. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. Oh, sorry, let me correct the language here. I thank you, Daddy. Abba, master of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the know-it-alls and showed them to these innocent newcomers. Yes, daddy, it pleased you to do it this way. I've been given, now he's kind of expanding to the rest of the guys, I've been given it all by my daddy, Abba. Only the Abba knows who the son is and only the son knows who the father is, the Abba. The son can introduce the Abba to anyone he wants to. He then turned in a private aside to his disciples. Fortunate the eyes that see what you're seeing. There are plenty of prophets and kings who would have given their right arm to see what you are seeing, but never got so much as a glimpse to hear what you're hearing, but never got so much as a whisper. So that's what happens right before the next thing happens. The audience who's hearing this, both if Luke is right in his memory about what was transpiring, people are just kind of like stunned. This is happening. And then later on, for generations and generations, the same kind of stun was going to happen until it became too familiar and we lost it. So right after this prayer ends, right at the amen, we get into the famous parable. Just then, a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? So who's asking the question? A religious scholar. Why is Luke remembering it this way? Because it's the religious scholar who just got offended. Because he found out he wasn't as in the inner circle as he thought he was. So juicy. So Jesus answered, well, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? I love how he says, how do you interpret it? Because that's what we do all the time. We're interpreting what the text is. And the religious scholar said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it, and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, like a good lawyer does, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor. Now there's some context here as well because Jewish people at that time considered only other Jewish people their neighbor and nobody else. So Jesus is about to give them a whopper and before we get into this story you need to know something. Now, we call this story the parable of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> Any Jewish person in Jesus' day if, you would have, if he would have said let me regale you with the story of the Good Samaritan. Every Jewish person in the audience would cringe. You know why? Two reasons. One, he mentioned Samaritans, and no Jews like Samaritans in his day. And it was, it was reversed, right? The, the Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. And the second thing that they would be scoffing at is, what did you call that Samaritan? You called that Samaritan good? There is no such thing, sir, as a good Samaritan. That's the context that we have. We have people who shouldn't have been doing what they were able to do, but they were used by the Spirit of God to do incredible things. It 
ticked off a religious scholar who Jesus was sort of recognizing you need to hear and see what just happened and now Jesus is about to tell a story to put this guy in his place and to teach us yet again just how powerful is the grace of God. So Jesus answered by telling a story to the question, how would you define neighbor? There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him angled across to the uh, when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. Let's just reread that. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. And when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. Hmm. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. Now, what do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly. The religion scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. What a story. Like last week's parable, I've probably taught on this 10 or 15 times. And I hope there's something new here to look at today as we take a different take on it. But before we get to the story and unpack this a little bit, I, I've been watching this commercial that is, it is so audacious and so heartwarming. I love it. And many of you know uh, Crosswalk member uh, Tom Conwell. Uh, he and his wife Linda have been members of this church for a very long time. And their health prohibits them from uh, coming to Crosswalk. Uh, but... Um, when you see this guy and this commercial, you're going to think, that could be Tom Conwell. Or it could be Tom Conwell's brother. Now, I can't verify if it is or is not, and he may not admit to it if it is, but you've got to see this video. Here we go. Maybe. Oh, man. All right, well, we're not going to have good technology uh, today, and that's okay. It's a, it's a, I know you've seen it. Uh, it's done by a healthcare group. Go ahead and bring up the lights, Ted. I don't think it's going to work. Um, it's a video of this, this, these two neighbors on their street by trash cans. Uh, and on one side of the street, you have this adorable African-American girl who's holding this stick and she's dancing around like this, you know, she's busting a move. And as soon as she's done with her little move, she like does this thing like a handoff. And Tom Conwell on the other side of the street, <laughs> he takes it. And he's like, okay, this is my time to riff. 
and he starts dancing like an older white man probably would, <laughs> which is not good at all. And then as soon as he's done, he passes it back to her, and she busts a move, and she's doing all kinds of cool stuff, and throws it back to him, and he busts his move, and she's cracking up and just giggling like this, and it just kind of comes down to an end. And at the end, you just see these two people across the street from each other, neighbors, who've exchanged something that's beautiful, that something transpired there in kind of an unusual way given our country and our country's history that something bridged a gap here that just brought two people together even though they were doing their dance off from respective sides of the street. Do you know the commercial I'm talking about? Have you seen it? I love it. I'm sorry it wasn't working for me today. It's probably my fault so uh, I'll own that. So before we get into some uh, stuff on this that I've been thinking about this all week because anytime it's kind of like Christmas stories anytime we get into a very familiar text I'm always asking man what am I what do I need to see here today? What's new? Because there's so much I've already covered with this over the years. But I think that what we're really needing to get at here has to do with what is the motive behind what's going on with that Samaritan, which I think has a little something to do with love. And so I came across this quote. Uh, this is from Richard Rohr. And it was in uh, one of the things that came to you this past Saturday, if you're on my email list. And this is what he says. It's kind of a long quote. If we are to believe the biblical revelation, it seems that God does not love the people Israel. God does not love the people Israel if they change, as they first imagine, but so that they can change. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the love is not dependent on their changing. Divine love is not a reward for good behavior as we first presume it to be. It is a larger life and energy and movement that we can participate in. And then, almost in spite of ourselves, we behave differently. It seems few of us go there willingly. For some reason, we're afraid of what we most want. He goes on, this whole human project pivots around divine love because our available understanding of love is almost always conditioned on I love you if or I love you when. Most people find it almost impossible apart from real transformation to comprehend or receive divine love. In fact, we cannot understand it in the least unless we stand under it, like a cup beneath a waterfall. When we truly understand divine love, our politics, our anthropology, our economics, and our movements for justice will all change. That last sentence says it all. When we truly understand divine love, our politics, our anthropology, our economics and our movements for justice will all change. So part of what I'm looking at today, I'm just wondering uh, what happened to the Samaritan pre-Jericho journey? What shaped him so that he cared for the victim? Because you had two very religious people who something didn't happen for them at that moment or at least real close to the time that this story went down. Uh, and they just passed on by two people who should have known better, who would have known the right answer to the question, how do I experience the God breaking in life? That's what eternal life was referring to at this point. Not going to heaven, but how do I experience the inbreaking of God into my life now? That, it, that is not just about now, but extends to heaven, but is also very much right now. And the religious guys would have known the answer. 
Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Yet some, for some reason, they just walked by. And I'm not going to waste any time giving them excuses on why they wouldn't have done that, because that's all they are. Because if love is at work, it sees past the excuses, and it just does what needs to be done because it can't help itself. So I'm wondering, what happened to that guy, the good Samaritan, who probably the original audience thought was the criminal coming back for more? What, what happened to this one who they thought, thought so poorly of that it transformed him to actually become the hero of the story? And so I think it had to do with what Rohr's talking about. Somehow, some way, that Samaritan dude experienced the power of love at work in his life. I don't know how. I don't fully understand it. So we only can guess as best as we can from the experience of others and our own experience. You know, I wonder how in the world uh, did the disciples have the courage to do what they did? And I think the only reasonable explanation is it's not that they took a correspondence course. It's that they were hanging around with Jesus so much that they really, really started to experience the love of God and it transformed them. So that when they went out, they knew they were not operating on their own power, but the love of God that was working through them. It wasn't them anymore that was the source. It was something greater than them that allowed them to get beyond their insecurities and lean into it for more. And I know there have been times in my own life where I've experienced this kind of thing. Sometimes it happens um, kind of serendipitously, uh, where maybe I'm in a meditative place, or I'm in a beautiful spot, or I'm reading something. I'm kind of in the zone, you know what I mean? Uh, you're, you've been there before. You're kind of in that spiritual place where you're open and seeing more clearly. And sometimes it's just, just like there's this insight. There's just this drop of an awareness of the love of God that's powerful and gives me a new idea or a new way of thinking, changes my eyes a little bit. Sometimes that happens. You know when it happens more often than not, though? When sin is in the air. Now, sin is not, you know, what did you do, Pete? You know, <laughs> let's hear it. That's not it. Remember, sin, one way to define that is the culpable disturbance of shalom. So how have I gotten in the way of what God is wanting to do in the world? That's shalom. It's another word. It's another way of thinking about salvation itself. So this deep peace, this wholeness, when I get in the way of that, either personally by stupid mistakes I make, or my errant thinking about how I'm viewing the world, that's the culpable disturbance of shalom. And sometimes there are moments when that pain of that not being in line and groove with God catches up with me. And when I finally realize it and take a deep breath and, you know, invite God into the process because I recognize that I'm a part of the disturbance of shalom, it's then, it's because of my pain that I have the awareness and humility to hear God say once again, but this is how love looks at this. This is how love sees this. Sometimes it's about me and my own mistakes, personal sins. But sometimes it's just about how I see the world. And I've got my attitude and my perspective. And it's like God catches up and says, hey, Pete, I know this is how you see it, and I know why you see it that way, but let me tell you how love sees it. Because it's different than how you're viewing. And thank God for such moments. Thank God that in my moments of disturbing shalom, God comes back with shalom to help me see.
This happens for other people in surprising ways. Uh, I have a friend that was telling me a story that's just pretty wild. So this friend of mine did not grow up in a Christian home, or at least not a home that practiced Christianity. He got into his working life, and uh, well into his adulthood, a friend at work introduced him to the faith. And he was elated and started attending the church of the guy who brought him to faith, because that makes sense. And because he didn't grow up in any kind of religious tradition, he just assumed, well, all churches are basically saying the same thing, and they're communicating the truth of God. And so uh, he just kind of took in everything that he was hearing as the gospel truth. And part of the gospel truth that he was hearing had to do with politics in the United States, uh, which should not surprise us because that's a reality. And the reality that he heard in his church, I'm not going to get political, uh, political so don't get, don't get uptight with me yet. <laughs> this is going to end well, okay? Uh, so, so deep breath, deep breath. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, he had it taught to him. Uh, that if you're really Christian, you're voting Republican, which some of you can give an amen to that perhaps. Uh, and perhaps the other side, he also heard that if you're, if you're a, a Democrat, you're probably a tool of Satan. <laughs> and that the chief de demon of the Democrat Party uh, is none other than Nancy Pelosi. So that's kind of how he was told to see the world. Kind of demonizing the other, because that's, that's what's happening here. It's saying, this is us, and that's the other. And that's how it always works. We see ourselves differentiated from the other, and almost all the time, we see the other, whatever that other is, as less than. And so, uh, he was just going on his merry way through his life, just assuming this is the gospel truth. This is how God intended things. I'm a part of this Christian community. We stand for truth, and this is the truth as I understand it. Then he had an unfortunate experience. He was up in St. Helena. And he went into a drugstore to buy something. And he sees this card uh, right in the middle of all the greeting cards. And it's the biggest one on display. And the front image on the card is Barack Obama. <laughs> Standing next to him, also looking at cards... Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> and so this guy, he's got a pretty good sense of humor. Uh, he taps her on the shoulder and says, hey, do you, ha do you anybody know who this guy is? <laughs> and she just starts to laugh. And then she introduced him to her grandchildren who were with her. And they had a 10-minute conversation that would have gone longer. But my friend wanted to call off the conversation because he didn't want to intrude on this grandma's day with her grandkids. And he went home and he told his wife, you'll never guess who I met today. Who? A grandma and her grandkids. It changed the vision of a person so that he no longer demonized the other but saw the human being. That is an inbreaking of the love of God. I've had this kind of happen to me. I don't know what was exactly happening, and I didn't know that this uh, had even happened uh, until, like, literally just a few years ago. I don't even remember why my old college friend posted this on Facebook because of whatever I posted, 
But she remembered a time, uh, this is probably in my junior or senior year of college, and uh, as a student, I was in charge, this won't terribly surprise you, I was in charge of the, <laughs> the student ministry stuff happening on campus uh, for Ottawa University in Ottawa, Kansas. And we were hosting some kind of fun event, cool event, and it was kind of a early in the fall, and uh, we we're going to go do something fun and all that. And, and one of the freshmen who was there uh, got some kind of an allergic reaction to something. And, um, and we're talking about, okay, we, we need to help this kid. He didn't have his own car, and we're not at, on campus. We needed to get him to a doctor. And so we're all just kind of looking around, and nobody's volunteering. And so I said, well, I'll take him. You guys go uh, run with this thing. Have a great time. If we can catch up with you, uh, great. Uh, but let me, let me take this. And for whatever reason, um, that startled my friend. Uh, and for however she saw me before that, I don't know if it was because I was the leader of what was happening and didn't think that I would do that to, to send it off or whatever, but she said in this Facebook response that my eyes changed about you and who you are and what you care about. And I didn't even know there was anything to change, but somehow love did something in her. And I had the same thing happen to me in college. There was a guy, a, a fellow student, uh, that uh, was a larger-than-life character. Uh, I won't share his name um, to protect him uh, a bit here, but um, he was a guy you could hear his laugh from three blocks away. And he, was, he had this incredible singing voice, and was a passionate singer, a tenor. And so, therefore, you can imagine his laugh was just way up there and just... He was, everything about this guy was larger than life. And I grew up in a household which was not larger than life. It was, okay, we, we're going to keep everything kind of calm down here, everybody. No loud noises, no shouting, please. That was kind of the environment that I grew up in. And so anytime I was around this guy, he, he was always, you know, shouting off. And, and sometimes he would uh, use language that would make a sailor blush, you know, kind of a thing. And he didn't care who was around. And so I was kind of unnerved about that, you know, because I grew up in kind of a bubble. And uh, I didn't know what to do with that. And he was gay. And I wasn't quite sure at that point in my life, how do I, how do I navigate this? I don't know him well, and um, what, what's happening? You know, just lots of lots of confusion going on in me at 18, 19 years old. Well, we both belonged to uh, the same uh, social club type thing, and there was a secret Santa uh, that year. And frankly, uh, this, this friend of mine, I, I didn't get to know him much uh, at that point to that point, probably because he felt like the other to me in a lot of ways. And I just I wasn't comfortable. I didn't know what to do. I felt out of place when I was with him. <clears throat> and so Secret Santa Day came, uh, and I found out that he was my Secret Santa. Now, my friend was, he didn't have a lot of money. He came from a small town in Colorado. I was poor. Um, and so I was shocked because somehow he got information about a music group that I liked at that time called the Pet Shop Boys <laughs> because the cool people listened to the Pet Shop Boys <laughs> back in the late 80s <laughs> West End Girls, you know what I'm talking about he bought me this cassette and I, it, I can't explain why but it just touched me that this guy made such an effort uh, 
to find out something about me that would be a meaningful gift and that also for him cost a lot of money. It was probably only 10 or 15 bucks, but for him, it was a lot of money. His act of love to me changed my eyes after it changed my heart. And after it changed my heart, it changed my mind. And after it changed my mind, it changed what I do with my hands and my feet and my mouth. I think that's what's going on here. This is what's happening here in this story. And by the way, this matters. Oh, does it matter? And I'm grateful for Jenny for sharing uh, her story here because this church and what we stand for matters to so many people. Even if they don't uh, darken our doors for a formal worship service, they are part of us. They are part of our larger community. We matter to them because we are a safe space. <sighs> Today I woke up uh, to bad news uh, again on a particularly uh, significant day. I didn't know that uh, today is Transgender Day of Remembrance. And that speaks something, doesn't it? That there needs to be a day of remembrance for this very small part of our collective community. Today in Colorado Springs, a gunman went into a nightclub that was predominantly a gay club called The Q and killed five people and wounded at least 18 others. Um, we don't know for sure, but hard to believe it was not coincidental that he was there on that day. Would have been crack of dawn this morning, probably midnight or 2 a.m., I'm not sure. And I can't tell you uh, how many times uh, I've heard, even in recent months and years, uh, why are we caring about such a small segment of the population? Why do we care about what black people think as a largely white community when they only make up a small percentage of the general population? Why do we care so much about Latinx community when they only make up a certain amount of people? Why do we care about mental health uh, situations so much and, and trouble so much when it's just a small part of the population? And why do we care about gay people, whatever they call themselves, when they're only a small percentage of the, of the, of the population? And I'll tell you why we do. Because of the Good Samaritan. Because of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan had every reason to blow off the guy on the side of the road. To say, I don't need to worry about you. You don't care about me. So I'm just going to walk on by. You don't matter to me. Two of your friends who should have taken care of you they don't care about you. Why should I? That is an attitude that is prevalent in us as human beings. This is a human condition issue. Later, toward the end of his life, Jesus is having a conversation with religious leaders who are having a real problem with his biblical interpretation. Because Jesus was just famous for saying stuff like, well, you've heard this scripture interpreted this way, but now I tell you this. 
That was part of his stump speech where he dismantled like five texts that they were hanging their hat on and at every turn he's saying, they got it wrong, let me give you a different way to think about this. Well, he knew it was toward the end and so he tells them another story and the gist of it is, he says, you know, uh, whenever you do a good thing for somebody in need, somebody who the rest of the world has looked over, you're doing it unto me. You're doing it unto God. You are, you are somehow blessing God. And when you do not do it for the least of these, you do it unto God. And he's saying this right to the religious leaders who were sitting in condemnation in their self-righteousness to say, we need not care about you, you small percentage of the population. We don't care if you go to hell because that's where you're going already. You might as well get a taste of it now. Maybe it'll turn you around. Maybe it's a good thing that some gunman went into a club and shot some people up. Maybe some churches are saying today, maybe that's good because it'll finally wake people up to the reality that it could be worse. And Jesus is saying to that part of us that agrees with it, when you do that to the least of these, you do it to me. Hmm. This matters. This matters. Many of you know Crosswalk's story. You know my story. Here's a pride point. Many times over the past several years, uh, we have received scorn uh, for doing things, for being in trouble, for doing things that Jesus did. And we've received scorn for the reasons why Jesus did those things. And I'm here to tell you, <laughs> I'm okay with that. If we are charged guilty for truly walking like Jesus, I'm okay with that. Because that's who we are. The Good Samaritan is not some nursery tale that we paint on the side of a wall. It's not this lightweight, easy, wonderful hallmark experience. Kind of, no, it is penetrating. And no matter who you are, it penetrates. The LGBTQIA plus community this whole issue is going to be one of the next issues that history will look back and say we have learned that there is a wide spectrum of understanding about human sexuality that while people may be born in this particular way they're assigned gender there are more complexities to that than could ever have been realized and history will look back and say and the church was at the front of the stage of judgment and they were last to come on board as they were for so many other leasts of these. But not here. I want to say something not to sound all macho, <laughs> but if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with me. But you don't really have a problem with me. You have a problem with the Jesus that we say we follow, which is so unfortunately inconvenient. 
when we're asked to truly be love in the world and wonder who are we going to love? How are we going to really do this? And you know, the, the thing is, the thing that breaks us, the thing that I think is our only hope is when we realize that we are the least of these at some point in our life. We're the ones on the side of the road. And somebody, or just the Spirit of God in its own way, has come and ministered to us. It's at that moment, it's like we finally see reality that it really isn't transactional, never has been, that grace and life, all of it is all a gift. And when we can see with those eyes, it changes our hearts, it changes our minds, and then it necessarily changes our hands and our feet and our mouth. Our anthropology, our economics, our politics, everything changes when we are transformed, not by some critical thinking, not by some lecture, but by the love of God. It is the only hope for the world. And we are the ones who get to be the caretakers of it. You know, the reality is that, and especially in the coming weeks, there's going to be a lot of focus on the birth of Jesus as the Son of God, but Jesus would be one. In fact, later uh, letters in the New Testament itself coming seemingly from one of his own disciples says, Beloved, 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 you, beloved, you are the sons and daughters of God. You are the sons and daughters of God. And you know how the rest of the world knows if you are the sons and the daughters of God? It is love. It is not your belief statement. It is not your voting record. It's not how many Bible verses you've memorized or songs you've sung. It is love. Will you be a son or daughter of God? Part of the problem is we have a memory. Things have happened to us that have messed with us, have shaped our eyes so much that it's crowded us and it's hard for us to see clearly because we have so many different competing voices in our head saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. We have yeah, but disease all over the place, <laughs> right? But there's good news. There's an antidote to yeah, but disease. And it has to do with being still and living in a different space and time. Not living in what just happened or what happened a long time ago, but living very much present now. I think Jesus had to do this regularly, break away from all the noise, so that he could leave yesterday behind where it needed to be, not in denial that it never happened, but he just needed to come back to be in touch with right now, and who God is in him right now, and remind him of himself, who he is right now now because I think he discovered that when he could do that and let go of all the noise and all the things that everything is said to him about himself when he could let that go and just be completely focused on the love of God over him he could finally see clearly he could finally do what God wanted him to do powerfully and I think that's available to us it's hard to sustain it's hard to remember to do it but it's possible and I want to lead you through it now, if you will. So if you could get comfortable, we're going to end in this meditation experience. And by the way, uh, the last thing I wanted to do today uh, would be to make you feel guilty about being the Good Samaritan. No, uh, I want you to feel passionate about who God is for you 
and what God has done for you so that we can be that person for others. So let's close our eyes together for a moment and breathe deep and slow. And as you breathe slowly, let me tell you about yourself. You were formed by somebody. You didn't pick who you were born to or where you were born or when you were born. But everything about who you were born to, when and where you were born, started to shape your eyes immediately. All of the influences, all of the prejudices, bias, even the truths that came with that package of you being born were all in operation with your very first breath. And even before that, as you learned to recognize your mother's voice, even while you were in the womb, you began to be shaped. Your genetics have shaped you to particular preferences. As you grew, the number of voices over you continued. Teacher after teacher, peer after peer. Some telling you wonderful, glorious things of love and who you are and building you up, and others, not so much. Some, by their spoken word, hurt you. Some, by their lack of spoken word, leveled you. This went on for your whole life. More teachers came into your world. Voices you don't even really know. The channels we watch on TV, be it from actual news stations or commentary stations, to the themes of the shows that are available to us. All of this has shaped how we see everything. It's baggage that we carry every day of our lives. Always there. Always telling us what to think and who to be. And it is heavy. And it is thick. Sometimes we don't even know who we are. We don't even know what to think. There is coming a day when you and I will finally and fully and forever be free of all of that. It is when we will draw our last breath with these lungs of ours. It's a guarantee. At that moment, all of the influences that have shaped us, all of the pain that we've carried, all of the filters over our eyes will be gone. And the only thing left will be love. Welcoming, warm, full of light, the source of life love. Can you imagine how that would feel? 
the weightlessness of it, the joy of it, the freedom of it. We might think to ourselves, man, why do we have to wait? It's exhilarating. And the truth is we don't have to wait. Because right now, right now, we can let go of all that has formed us, even if for just a split second, and just know that we are deeply, profoundly, provocatively, prodigiously loved. Not because of anything you've done, but because of who you are. You're a child of God. And this daddy just loves you and wants you to be free. Stay in this spot. Stay in this spot of love. Is there anything on your mind right now, anything you brought with you, any decision that's bothering you, an interpretation of your reality? Bring it into that space where love abounds, where you are fully identified as a child of God, fully loved. And through those eyes, through the eyes of love, can you imagine a different way to respond to that thing which is gnawing at you? Listen to that. Spirit of God, we hear the story of the Good Samaritan, and we are so conflicted because we so want to be that Good Samaritan. We think, oh, we just got to try harder, and we just got to remember as adding it to our to-do list, okay, be nice to people who are disenfranchised and on the side of the road. Make sure I tick that box whenever that happens, but that's not it. You never meant this to be some legalistic thing. You meant this to be a natural response out of our knowing that we are so deeply and profoundly loved that we can't help but love, that that is how we will be defined. So God, oh God, God break through that we might be your sons and daughters, that the world might know that they are loved because your love is broken through. <sighs> to that end, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sorry, and thank you.
See you next week. Thank <clears throat>